I've been an academic physician my entire career. I always wanted to teach. It's a way of imparting knowledge that I have worked hard to gain to younger uh, medical students and doctors so that they can go out and do things right. that I just played you a short excerpt from. Uh, that was Dr. John Murray, who is a world-renowned pulmonologist who was a faculty member at UC San Francisco for many, many, many years. Even after retirement, he was an emeritus professor that still practiced there. He uh, edited for many years with Dr. Jay Nadell from UCSF, uh, a textbook of pulmonary medicine that is still one of the real Bibles of pulmonary medicine. He's also one of the first pulmonologists to describe ARDS, um, which has some irony in it because he died of complications from ARDS from the novel coronavirus just a few weeks ago. Uh, he was one of my attendings in the ICU at San Francisco General Hospital, and in fact, he was the person that started the intensive care unit at San Francisco General back in the day. So really uh, quite a giant in the world of medicine and specifically pulmonary medicine. We will miss him. Uh, he had a great life, incredibly productive, died at the age of 92 just a few weeks ago from the coronavirus. And I'm happy to be here today to present you our third morning report. This is a distance learning endeavor in the times of COVID virus. So I'm going to present you today a case of a patient I saw just a few weeks ago here at UC Davis. And let's go. So chief complaint for this patient was loss of consciousness. The patient is a 67-year-old man with a past history of cholangiocarcinoma with surgical resection nine months prior to admission, lower extremity, deep venous thromboses of both legs, who presented to the ED after his wife called 911 for transient loss of consciousness at home. The history was obtained from both the patient and his wife. The episode occurred when the patient got out of bed in the morning and moved to the couch. His wife came into the room and found him lying face down on the couch with strange breathing, quote-unquote, and he was unresponsive to both verbal and physical stimuli. He then started having jerking movements of his right arm and was drooling with his head turned. His wife sat him up and the jerking movements gradually stopped, but he was still unresponsive to voice and was staring through her as though she wasn't there. He seemed to be out of it for approximately 10 minutes, according to the patient's wife. She called 911 during that interval. The patient's first awareness of the event was when he became aware that paramedics were tending to him in his home. Paramedics initially noted his systolic blood pressure to be in the 80s, uh, and it gradually uh, came up to a normal range over the next few minutes. The patient could not recall any strange feelings or specific aura prior to losing consciousness on the couch. Additional history obtained from the patient was that he said he'd been having odd symptoms for several weeks that included an unusual headache 
with pain at the base of his skull that radiated upward over his head and was associated with dizziness and a quote-unquote whooshing sound in both of his ears. These symptoms lasted from 5 to 15 minutes at a time and then would spontaneously resolve without treatment. The dizziness was described as a lightheadedness where he felt like he was going to fall. He had previously complained of these symptoms to his oncologist, who had ordered a non-contrast head CT, which was negative three weeks prior to admission. The patient had previously been on the trial of gemcitabine, cisplatin, and paclitaxel by his oncologist, but this had been stopped one week prior to admission due to complaints of nausea, occasional emesis, anorexia, and the complaint of dizziness, as was just described. Despite stopping the chemotherapy, the patient had continued to have poor appetite, nausea, and occasional emesis. The patient denied fevers, night sweats, or weight loss. Review of systems was remarkable for the above, as well as marked exhaustion and malaise, but was otherwise negative, but for what I have mentioned in the HPI. His past medical history was that he presented 11 months prior to admission with jaundice and was found to have a mass near his liver. An ERCP was performed at that time, which revealed complete compression of his hepatic duct and a stent was placed. A tissue diagnosis of cholangiocarcinoma was made and he underwent a cholecystectomy, regional lymphadenectomy, and RUNY hepatico-jejunostomy nine months prior to admission at an outside medical center. Pathology revealed poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma and nine of 12 lymph nodes were positive. The tumor had invaded into surrounding perineural and lymphovascular space and was officially classified as T2a-n2. A CT scan abdomen done one month after the surgery or eight months prior to admission revealed new bulky retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy. He was referred to our medical oncologist at our medical center as he lived closer to here and was begun on a trial of cisplatin, paclitaxel, and gemcitabine. These agents had been stopped one week prior to admission, as mentioned above. A deep venous thrombosis in both lower extremities had been diagnosed four months prior to admission when he presented to the emergency department with lower extremity edema. Uh, He was initially started on rivaroxaban, but uh, this caused a rash, so he was switched to edoxaban, and this was stable at the time of admission. He also had a history of psoriasis, which was currently quiescent. His family history was non-contributory. His social history, he was retired and uh, lived with his wife. He was independent of his activities of daily living, although he had been less active than prior since he'd been diagnosed with his cancer. He had never used tobacco. Prior to one week ago, he was drinking one glass of wine with dinner each evening, but since he'd developed his nausea, occasional vomiting, and dizziness, he had not been consuming any alcohol. He had no history of other recreational drug use or drug abuse. Allergies included a reported allergy to penicillin, which he said he had a rash when he was a baby but could not give details, and the rivaroxaban, which caused a rash. 
His only medications on admission were edoxaban for the deep venous thrombosis four months previous. Physical exam at the time of admission revealed a temperature of 36.5 degrees centigrade, blood pressure 138 over 74, pulse 70, respiratory 14, and a room air O2 saturation of 99%. His body mass index was 26. In general, he was a very pleasant and cooperative man, appearing stated age and in no acute distress. His head was atraumatic, his pupils were equal round relaxed of delight and accommodation. Fundoscopic exam was not done at the time of admission. Mucous membranes were dry and oropharynx was without lesions. His tongue did not have any lacerations or contusions. His external otic canals were without lesions and his tympanic membranes were pearly gray. His neck was supple without lymphadenopathy. Cardiovascular exam revealed a regular rate and rhythm with a normal S1 and S2 without murmurs, rubs, or gallops. He had normal carotid upstrokes without bruise. Lungs were clear to auscultation. Abdominal exam revealed a slightly obese abdomen with a midline surgical scar, which was well healed. There were no obvious hernias <coughs> on direct observation. Bowel sounds were present, the belly was soft and non-tender without appreciable hepatosplenomegaly. His extremities were warm, well-perfused, without clubbing, cyanosis, or edema. Dermatologically, he had, or I should say his skin exam, he had no rashes or other skin lesions. Neurologic exam revealed that he was alert and oriented to person, place, and time. His affect was appropriate. Cranial nerves 2 through 12 were intact. Strength was 5 out of 5 throughout his upper and lower extremities. Reflexes were symmetric in the upper and lower extremities, and sensation to light touch was intact throughout his extremities. Labs essentially were unexciting. His white count was 8,000. Hemoglobin was 12, platelets 200,000. Creatinine is 0.94. Liver function tests were within normal limits, chest x-ray, no infiltrates, EKG, no acute changes with normal sinus rhythm. So at this juncture, I would ask you to perhaps pause this recording and think about what your problem represent, representation is in this patient. And then think about what your differential diagnosis is for this patient's apparent loss of consciousness, what's highest on your differential diagnosis and why and also, I ask you to think about what you would do next. So why don't you pause at this juncture and think about this case. All right, so I'm not very good at problem representations. I will give you that. But here's the problem representation I came up with, which is this is an elderly man with history of metastatic cholangiocarcinoma presenting with intermittent dizziness headaches, and an episode of loss of consciousness with jerking movement and confusion after the event. That is probably way too wordy. My friend Mark Henderson, Vice Chair of Education here at UC Davis, would give me a hard time about that one. I'm sorry, Mark. You'll have to just deal with it. But you can make your own if you wish. So I think initially we need to reflect upon what the etiology of this patient's loss of consciousness is. 
could this be a seizure or is this some sort of cardiogenic syncope or vasovagal syncope? Remember that vasovagal syncope is the most common cause of syncope, but there's a lot of things in this story going for a seizure. Um, also, you know, is this a volume-related event? Was he hypovolemic? He did have a blood pressure of 80 in the field, which I should add was not found to be the case when he arrived to the emergency department. Uh, and what's with this several-week course of intermittent, apparently self-resolving dizziness and whooshing in his ears? All right, so as we're reflecting on that, uh, I want to just mention one article that's worth pulling and reading if you're interested in this topic. We do a lot of analysis of patients who have been found down or had apparent syncopal events in the field, and we gather the historical information, which is usually the key in my experience. And then we grab a few things on physical exam and some labs to try, and, and an EKG, of course, to try and figure out what might be going on. So you're wondering, did this patient have cardiac syncope? Um, did this patient have a seizure? And I'd point you to the JAMA Rational Clinical Exam article from June 2019 to get some more um, useful information about the assessment of seizure versus syncope. So I'm going to just jump to one of the tables. This is table four in the article, and it's distinguishing seizure from syncope. And one of the highest likelihood ratios, positive likelihood ratios for um, findings when you're trying to decide whether the patient's had a seizure or not is head turning. That likelihood ratio is 14. And interestingly enough, uh, this patient, according to his wife, did have his head turned at the time he had the jerking movements. Uh, unusual posturing likelihood ratio is 13. So he had head turning and unusual posturing. Um, and each of those likelihood ratios are uh, respectively 14 and 13. Uh, he did not uh, have urinary incontinence. This is another valuable thing to ask about. That likelihood ratio is 6.7. Uh, interestingly enough, if the patient has blue color observed by bystanders, that likelihood ratio is close to 6. Now, you're wondering about the limb jerking noted by his wife. That likelihood ratio is 5.6. So I'd say looking at the relative history here, the head turning, the unusual posturing, and then this uh, limb jerking noted by his wife, that really helps us elevate seizure as a possible etiology of this odd event that he had. So what about the physical exam? What things can you look for in the physical exam? Well, if the patient has a, a laceration in the tongue, that likelihood ratio is 17. And then the other thing, and I don't know so much if this is like a physical exam finding, but if the patient doesn't recall the behaviors, uh, that likelihood ratio is 4. And of course, this patient really lost a period of memory before the paramedics showed up in his home. So one could probably call that some sort of post-ictal event. Usually a pure syncopal episode, the patient wakes up and is with it within a couple of minutes, if not less than that. This patient clearly had some confusion after his event and a few things by his wife's history as well as his uh, 
is the fact that he didn't recall uh, what had happened uh, for a while. Um, and then there's also this clinical prediction rule for distinguishing seizure, seizure versus syncope. And just to briefly mention this, this is table five in this JAMA article from 2019. And um, if the patient wakes with a cut tongue, they get two points. So that tongue uh, physical finding can be really um, useful. And that's one of the most heavily valued things in this particular um, chart. It's adapted from Sheldon et al., by the way. Uh, if abnormal behavior is noted, they get a point. Loss of consciousness with emotional stress, they get a point. Postictal confusion, they get a point. Head turning to one side during the loss of consciousness, they get a point. Prodromal déjà vu, or jamais vu, um, that gets a point, which he didn't have. Any presyncope, you subtract two points. Now, he didn't really have any symptoms of presyncope. Loss of consciousness with prolonged standing or sitting, he didn't have that. Diaphoresis before a spell, that's another minus two points. So really, uh, if we're looking at this point system, um, he's got... Uh, abnormal behavior, um, post-dictal confusion, that's two, uh, and then the head turning to one side, that's three. A score of greater than or equal to one suggests seizure, and a score less than one suggests syncope. So he has a lot of things there going for a seizure. So I think we're dealing with a seizure, and we'll see what the team thought. So what is your differential diagnosis at this point for a patient who comes in with this story, as well as his nausea, vomiting, dizziness, bizarre headache that sort of goes away on its own after, you know, 5 to 15 minutes? Um, and I think one of the things you have to think about in a case like this is you could form, you know, we call them diagnostic schemas now. You could have a huge schema for somebody who's had a seizure, and you can kind of go through all those things. Um, I'm not very good at remembering those schemas, and so I tend to just go fall back on the history and try and narrow things down based on what the patient or and or their family has told me. And I think that if you look at the temporal nature of this patient's disease course, namely, he was relatively healthy until he had this cholangiocarcinoma, and he's had a pretty steady tempo of worsening, you know, going back to presenting with jaundice, having surgery, having positive margins as well as positive lymph nodes, a month later even, having... Uh, lymphadenopathy and his retroperitoneum that wasn't there at the time of the surgery, at least before they, when they scanned him before the surgery, I should say. So a month or two, that's come up. So I'm thinking that I want to somehow tie this in, perhaps, to his recent history of cholangiocarcinoma. I always think about if it's a cancer that's occurred in the last couple of years, depending on the type of cancer, then I want to think about whether it's the cancer progressing in some way or other, some complication of that cancer, or is it a complication of what we're doing to try and treat the patient, i.e. the chemotherapy or medication given to treat the chemotherapy or its side effects. So we know that he was off his chemotherapy for at least a week or so because of his nausea, vomiting, and dizziness. So less likely to be the case here. And then you have to ask yourself whether any of these chemotherapeutic agents, if he were still on them, could actually cause a seizure. 
And I looked into this uh, pretty thoroughly, and I could not find any reports of gemcitabine, paclitaxel, um, uh, I forget the third one he was on, but uh, at this moment in time, but I could find nothing about those causing uh, CNS side effects in the form of this type of seizure. So maybe safer to blame it on the cancer. And um, so then you got to think about what you want to do next with this patient. So his hospital course was that the team thought that the patient had most likely been having partial seizure, seizures, so they obtained a neurology consultation and obtained an MRI scan with gadolinium, thinking that perhaps they would discover some brain mets. And the results were of the consultation first that neurology thought these probably were partial seizures and recommended an EEG, which was done and was negative, and they also agreed with the already ordered MRI scan with gadolinium. And uh, so you order a eight or $10,000 test, which is about what an MRI billing is. You gotta ask yourself, what will it show? What do I think I'm gonna find on it in this man who doesn't have any focal deficits at the time he's admitted to the hospital, but has this weird, probably partial seizure, partial complex seizure. And so, interestingly enough, the MRI here showed no uh, METs in his brain. Uh, did not show any metastatic disease or hydrocephalus. But interestingly enough, it did show bulging of both optic discs consistent with papilledema from increased intracranial pressure. Hmm, when's the last time you heard a report on an MRI like that? Very odd. So what now? Well, when you're thinking about what could be causing the papilledema, usually that's increased intracranial pressure. And these symptoms he was having, the nausea, the vomiting, the dizziness, those are fairly classic symptoms for increased intracranial pressure. So that's beginning to make some sense. And he also had this intermittent headache, headache being uh, a definitely a symptom of in increased intracranial pressure as well. So ophthalmology was consulted, his eyes were dilated, and they revealed that he had grade 5 papilledema of both optic discs consistent with markedly increased intracranial pressure. Now just to digress for one moment here, if you're not used to grading systems for papilledema, grade 0 is normal uh, disc, uh, borders are completely visible, there's nothing going on there. And then you progress through the various grades of blurring of the optic discs and bulging and so forth. And he had the worst uh, kind of papilledema, um, where the borders you cannot see at all, and he's got just these bulging discs um, consistent with increased intracranial pressure. So, of course, ophthalmology and neurology recommended that uh, he have a lumbar puncture performed. Now, by the time I saw the patient a few days into his stay, I picked him up from another faculty member. He was complaining of really severe headaches, which seemed to be much worse in the morning and somewhat improved through the day. So this was something that sort of seemed to develop even under our noses in the hospital. And the headaches really became a predominant complaint when I saw him each day, and they were markedly impairing his ability to sleep at night. He was absolutely miserable with them. Uh, I had him sleep partially sitting up, uh, thinking that uh, that would help with the increased intracranial pressure, which from the gravity effect of sleeping flat, I thought was probably making things worse in the mornings for him. That helped a little bit, 
but he still complained of fairly severe headaches in the morning that tended to improve through the day. So his further hospital course was he had a lumbar puncture performed. The opening pressure was, now remember, normal opening pressure is somewhere between 6 and 20 centimeters of water. His opening pressure was 53 centimeters of water. He literally needed the second manometer attached uh, in order to be able to fully measure his opening pressure. Uh, and his glucose was 44. Now, you're wondering what was, I forget what a normal glucose is on a CSF specimen. Well, normally it should be around two-thirds of the peripheral blood glucose. Now, that day, this was, LP was performed at 3 in the afternoon. His glucose at 8 a.m. that day was 104. Now, you're really supposed to be checking the glucose within four hours of the lumbar puncture, so this isn't really super uh, spiffy and accurate. But I'd say that that glucose of 44, even if you assume a blood sugar of 104 in the afternoon, is, is low. That is less than uh, two-thirds of the peripheral glucose. And his protein was 64, which is, for our lab, uh, slightly elevated. So he's got a lowish glucose and elevated protein. That is not normal. And he had 12 white blood cells in clear specimen. Uh, the differential uh, on the cells in there. Remember, if you're thinking about what's a normal number of white blood cells, 12 is not a lot, but up to 5 is allowable. 12 is not normal. Differential revealed that he had 6% polymorphonuclear cells, and normally you shouldn't see more than one or two uh, polys in there in a normal CSF. And he had 49% lymphs and 41% histiocytes. And so when you're thinking like, oh, what's the normal CSF specimen? Usually it's about 70% lymphocytes and 30% monocytes. Now here they're reporting 49% lymphocytes, 41% histiocytes, and histiocytes come from monocytes. So I couldn't really find too much about uh, whether this is a warning sign of something, the fact that he has histiocytes in there, but these basically come from monocytes, so I'm not going to read too much into that. But I haven't given you the whole 100% of the cells here. And then there were 4% of cells that were large cells with irregular nucleoli, prominent nuclear borders, and irregular vacuoles in the cells. So think about that. He's got a lowish glucose, slightly elevated protein, an abnormal number of cells in his CSF, which are not a normal differential. He's got a increased polys, decreased lymphs, and about the right number probably of monocytes, histiocytes, whatever. But then he's also got these irregular, abnormal, kind of scary 4% cells. Uh, within 48 hours, the cytology came back positive for adenocarcinoma. So the diagnosis here was leptomeningeal carcinomatosis. So what about leptomeningeal carcinomatosis? Well, A, this was uh, what we were expecting based on the fact that he had increased intracranial pressure, even though he had an MRI that did not show metastatic disease. 
And this can definitely happen in leptomeningeal carcinomatosis. You need to have a kind of low index of suspicion, or is it a high index of suspicion? You have to think about it being a definite possibility with a story like this. Actually, leptomeningeal carcinomatosis is thought to occur now in up to 5% of all cancers, particularly breast, lung, and melanoma. Uh, fourth on that list actually is gastrointestinal malignancies, but cholangiocarcinoma as a cause of leptomeningeal carcinomatosis is really quite rare uh, and is probably, this is probably a case that the residents could write up and submit to a journal or at least do a, at a poster at the American College of Physicians meetings or elsewhere. Um, the diagnosis of leptomeningeal carcinoma is most commonly made via looking at the CSF after an LP, but it's sometimes found in advance of that with an MRI scan which shows either um, mass lesion or diffuse contrast enhancement of the meninges. And Sometimes you can just see hydrocephalus without seeing any obvious cause of the hydrocephalus. In this case, that would have been sort of a telling finding. Here we saw this optic disc edema, um, which was interesting. I've never had an MRI scan come back on a patient with that report, but certainly uh, it fit with the clinical picture. The median survival without treatment after the diagnosis of leptomeningeal carcinomatosis is only four to six weeks, so it's really a devastating diagnosis for a patient. With treatment, and that's usually either radiation treatment or chemo with radiation, you generally get about three to six months of survival. But it's also worth knowing that after chemoradiation, they can occasionally develop a side effect known as necrotizing leukoencephalopathy, which is also a devastating development in this process of treatment. So our patient, to go back to the patient, uh, was seen by radiation oncology, and he was begun on whole brain radiation after having a normal uh, MRI uh, of his spine, by the way. Uh, they were worried about that there might be metastatic disease there as well. They wanted to make sure he didn't need radiation anywhere else. He was discharged home on an anti-seizure medication as well as with uh, a lot of analgesia to help with his headache. And in reviewing his chart two weeks after follow-up, his headache was completely gone, um, but he had begun having falls and had actually presented to his oncologist after one of these falls. Uh, before discharge, we had him seen by palliative care. Uh, we offered him the option of hospice at that time, but he was not ready for it. Four weeks after discharge, he was still debating about whether he wanted to enter hospice, uh, despite the fact that we had uh, emphasized how poor his prognosis was and the fact that his oncologist had similarly done the same thing in the outpatient setting. So just he was having some trouble letting go. This diagnosis of cancer had really at this point been less than a year prior. So teaching points, while it's a very rare complication of cholangiocarcinoma, Leptomeningeal carcinomatosis was high on our differential diagnosis because of the temporal nature of the patient's rapidly progressing, very aggressive cancer. Uh, breast and lung cancers, as well as melanoma, are the top cancers associated with leptomeningeal carcinomatosis. Um, 
and around 5% of all cancers are thought, to, and those should be non-hematologic cancers, are thought to cause leptomeningeal carcinomatosis. So headache is the most common presenting complaint of leptomeningeal carcinomas, carcinomatosis at about 30 to 50% of patients. Nausea, vomiting, and dizziness are classic symptoms of elevated intracranial pressure, which this patient, remember, had a very high opening pressure. And seizures occur in up to 25% of patients with leptomeningeal carcinomatosis, which uh, very much fit the patient's story prior to coming into the hospital. So lessons learned from the physical diagnosis standpoint, fundoscopic exam should be part of the physical exam in someone presenting with headache, nausea, vomiting, and dizziness, or other neurologic symptoms. It's never good to be aced by an MRI. Um, and uh, I have to say that after we knew that the MRI showed this bilateral uh, optic disc edema, I went uh, to see the patient with my ophthalmoscope in my pocket and took a look in there. And I could see the uh, papal edema for sure, but it was really not an easy exam. I didn't have any um, tropicamide, also known as madriacil, that's the, the uh, trade name, to dilate his eyes with. And even if I had, I don't think he would have wanted me to do that. He wasn't too thrilled with the ophthalmology exam that had been done uh, the day before. So still, it's more fun to make the diagnosis at the bedside than it is to be aced by an MRI scan. So that's why I bring that up. And as my, our students know, I'm a big fan of the physical exam still. I think it adds a lot and can sometimes give you the diagnosis before all this fancy technology he gets in there and does it as well. Just more fun to practice medicine that way. Anyway, those are the lessons that we learned from this case, or I learned from this case. Very sad case, I have to say. Uh, his prognosis is really quite poor, um, but a case where we learned quite a bit from. So with that, I'm going to stop. I hope you have a great day, and we'll usher you out with some music here.